been in a series called Life Together, and we've been talking about community. And um, we started this series with the intent not just to teach, um, you know, as our church has been, you know, going through formation and growing as a community, we believed it was important for us to not just talk about some heady stuff, but for us to unify as a community and to strengthen ourselves as a church. And even in this larger kingdom city context, I'm going to be sharing this later um, at annual meeting, focusing on us, on doing us well. You know, we're not getting caught up in all of the other kingdom city stuff. That's great. We benefit from this. But really, woven focusing on growing woven. Um, because I believe that God has called our church for a specific purpose. God has called us for a particular ministry. And we can see this, um, even Paul talks about this in, in the epistles, about how God calls some to be apostles. God calls some to be teachers. God gives ministry in unique ways to different people and to different congregations. And I am under the firm conviction that God has given a unique ministry, a unique ministry to Woven. And so we're focusing on our ministry and what we do well. And to that extent, and to that, um, to that end, today we're going to talk about that very thing, ministry. So we're talking about ministry in Woven today. And um, you might be thinking, if you are reading together with us through Life Together, which I hope you are, because it's a really good book. If you're reading through this book, we're skipping ahead today to chapter 4, ministry. And the reason we're doing this, we're kind of skipping around, is because uh, as a preacher, sometimes I like to coordinate things with certain Sundays. For example, chapter 5 is confession and communion. And next Sunday is communion Sunday. So we're doing that next Sunday. And today we're talking about ministry. Well, today we have annual meeting. An annual meeting is talking about ministry. And therefore, I thought that this would be a great Sunday for us to talk about ministry. A great Sunday for us to talk about the ministry of the community of believers. And so that's what we're going to talk about today. We're coming from chapter 4, ministry. And Bonifer, in the way that he does so well, cuts right to the heart of the matter. I like Bonifer. I like him because if you had Dietrich Bonifer as a friend, I mean, this is probably projecting a little bit, he would be the person to tell you like it is. He would tell you like it is. He will not tell you what you want to hear. He will not tell you comfortable little things that just kind of, um, you know, he, he, he doesn't settle for cliches. He's the person that would tell you the truth. And in the same way, he talks about ministry and cuts right to the heart of the chase. The problem with ministry, Bonifer says, and this is not just for people like me, people that are pastors, but for all of us. The problem with ministry and ministering in the church and serving in the church is that all of us, we all inside of us have this desire, in his words, his words say, to gain ascendancy. All of us have this desire to gain ascendancy. And in other words, all of us have this desire, whether we're aware of it or not, in some form or another, we have this desire for power. In every relationship, it's always present. Now, talk about annual meetings. We're having annual meetings. We're going to be voting on a new LT today. And I remember being a kid, um, even part of a, a church just like this. Um, my goodness. So we're going back 35 years 
um, growing up in a church, it was this size. Eventually, that church grew to about 200, 250 people. And running around in the Korean church, and my dad was always sitting in these business meetings after service, and my dad became an elder. And one day, my dad told me about what it was really, really like behind the scenes. I mean, elders, they could really go at it. You know, they could really have these arguments and really, and what was, what was the most difficult is when there would be voting voting for new elders. And I don't know why they did this in the church that I grew up in, but they would have two nominees for one position. Now, thankfully, we're not doing that. We don't do that. But they would have two people in the running for the same position. One person would win. One person would lose. I I don't know why they did that. Because inevitably, the person who lost out, do you think they stuck around for long? I mean, it hurts. There's, There's a wounding in that process. And no matter how humble a person might be, we have inside of us this instinct, this instinct. Now, you might be saying, there might be somebody that might say, I don't have that instinct inside of me. I, I'm, I'm not hungry for power. But what Bonifer says, and he, and he says this, he says, if a person, even if a person is not strong, you can still claim the right of the weak as your own and use it against the strong. In other words, what he's saying is if you're not strong, if you're weak, still you might have this tendency, this desire to gain ascendancy over somebody else because you might have resentment. You might say, well, I'm not strong like them, uh, but everybody knows that you know the person that's the weak is the better person, is the more morally you know, upright person. Somehow we, we justify ourselves. We justify ourselves. By justifying myself, saying I may not be powerful or strong or wealthy, but I, but I am so-and-so. So we do this self-justifying thing. And what Bonifer says, what he's saying there is ministry or service in the church can't be born from that self-justifying instinct. That thing that says, but I'm better because dot, dot, dot. You know, if I can illustrate, um, I've been reliving my teen years um, with this YouTube series um, called Cobra Kai. And I don't know if anybody has watched this series. It's so good. And it's basically um, reliving the teenage angst of Karate Kid. If you've watched Karate Kid... You know, it's like, you know, live or die, man, you know, and, you know, Cobra Kai, never die, and all that stuff. And you have the consummate bully played by, you know, I don't know what his name is, but Johnny. And then you have Daniel, Daniel LaRusso, who is the bullied. And basically what they did is they rebooted this movie in a series, in a YouTube series, where uh, they got the same actors, Daniel LaRusso and um, the guy who plays Johnny, Um, the same actors, but 35 years later, and what they did was they reversed the roles. And now the bullied is the bully. And the bullier becomes the the guy you're rooting for. Johnny, all of a sudden, is the person that you're really hoping, you know, that he'll get his comeuppance. You see, what I think we're seeing in this illustration is that in life, we're always striving to get on top. If you're not on top today, maybe 35 years later, you'll be the one that has the last laugh. And that instinct, what Bonifer calls the desire to gain ascendancy, that instinct is just about the exact 
opposite of ministry. You see, Bonifer talks about ministry as this thing where we're not justifying ourselves, but instead we are justified by God. And because we're justified by God, ministry is driven by only one desire. True ministry has to be driven by only one thing. Does anybody know what that is? It's the desire to serve. That is the Jesus instinct. It's not, a, it's not a desire for power or to be the one on the top saying, live or die, man. Or, you know, it's not, it's not about the one at the end who gets the last. It's about the desire to serve. Now, the problem is, and before we launch into um, our four headings for today, the problem is if you and I are honest, we all have a desire to gain ascendancy. We all have this desire to be back on top. We all have this innate desire And many times we'll enter into ministry, again, this is not just for me, not just pastoral ministry, but we'll enter into serving in the church. We'll enter into volunteering and somehow we're seeking to gain something out of that, whether it's to gain control or to gain power or to gain recognition or to gain affirmation or to gain love. We all are looking to gain something. Yes, even our serving, Bonifer says this in chapter 1, even our serving sometimes can be tainted with that desire to get something in return. What is it? What's in it for me? And that's a very normal human instinct. But at the same time, ministry is a sacrificial thing. Leadership in the church, volunteering in the church, serving in the church... And not just in the church, but ministry out in the world is sacrificial. That's the Jesus model. That's the gospel message. And the thing is, when we look at that, nobody wants to sacrifice. Nobody wants to sacrifice. And so what I'd like to do today is answer this question, how does God call you, not me? I don't want this to be a a, a sermon about pastors, but a sermon for all of us. How does God call you to ministry? And if you look in your notes, you're going to see four, a four-step process that I identify from the book of Jonah. The book of Jonah is a great place to read when you're struggling with your involvement, not just in the church, whether it's in serving in the church or serving in the world. Why am I doing what I'm doing? What is my ministry? What is my work? And today I'm going to walk through a four-step process that I see in the first few verses of the book of Jonah about how God calls you to ministry, how God calls us to ministry. And before I launch into that first, that first step, I just want to say that um, somebody died this week. I just want to just um, give homage about somebody who died this week and taught me about ministry. Um, I never met him personally, but his book, um, his writings taught me about the whole journey of sacrificial ministry, of what ministry is really about. Um, His name was Eugene Peterson, if you can just pull up that graphic. And Eugene Peterson taught at my seminary, and um, he wrote a series of books that it really saved my ministry 10 years ago. Ten years ago, it saved my ministry, and when I found out that he died just this past, I think it was Tuesday, I've started rereading this book, and it's saving my ministry again. This book, Under the Unpredictable Plan, is basically one long exposition, just one exposition through the book of Jonah. 
And the insights that I get today through Jonah come from this book. They come from this book and from my teacher, Eugene Peterson, about what ministry and service really is about. Um, I hope, I really hope that this message not only saves mine, but it saves your ministry. I hope it saves your volunteering. I hope it saves your service. I hope it saves your perspective towards work. And so without further ado, let's get into verse 1 as we look at this first heading. The first verse of the book of Jonah is the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai. The word of the Lord. That's the first step. A word will come. First step. A word will come. Brothers and sisters, let's hear this word. Let's hear this message. A word will come, and it will grip you. It will not let you sleep. When I was in my early 20s, I used to cry myself to sleep. That sounds pretty sad, right? Now, I didn't cry myself to sleep because I was undergoing some kind of crisis or because I was depressed. I was crying myself to sleep because in my early 20s, a word of the Lord began to come to me. Now, I want you to understand that I had been in the church since I was 13 years old. I, at that point in my early 20s, I probably heard upwards of 500 to 1,000 sermons. And I underwent a faith crisis, and I came out on the other end with a renewed understanding. The Word of God came alive to me to the point where I couldn't sleep. And there were nights, I remember, where I was lying on my bed and tears would stream down the sides of my face as I was thinking about this. What does this mean? My goodness, the gospel message, the implications, how this call, what this means for me personally. So you see, the word will come. And even though you're hearing my words today, you're hearing my message, you're hearing my sermon, friends, I want to tell you that there will come a day, not if, but when, for each and every single one of you, where you will say, I get it. I get this gospel message. I get what Pastor Wayne was waving his arms and prancing back and forth and trying to communicate something. There was something essential to his message. I get it. I know what this gospel message is about. It turns everything upside down. It's when the weak become strong and the strong are laid low. It's when you hear the people sing, singing the song of angry men. It is the music of the people who will not be da-da-da-da-da-da-da. And you hear that and it makes you want to stand up on your bed and for crying out loud you got to go to work the next morning but you have this song in your heart the word has become alive the gospel message is singing in your heart and who's going to sleep when that happens tears flow involuntarily down your face and you don't want that to happen people are like something wrong no I'm filled with happiness the gospel is alive a word will come not if but when? You see, the first verse of Jonah, it starts in Hebrew. You don't see this in the English. It starts in Hebrew with the word and. And. And it came to pass. Via he, Hebrew word that translates, and it came into being, and it happened. 
In other words, we are entering into a continuing, ongoing story between Jonah and God. And it's almost like, you know, we read Jonah, we think that it's about Nineveh. We think it's about Tarshish. Really, the story of Jonah, in my opinion, is about a man's love relationship with his God. It's about a relationship. And what happens is we catch the story halfway through via he, and it happened. And what's happening is we enter into an ongoing story. The word of God is not a matter of if it comes, when it comes. It will come. It's a happening and it will mess you up in a good way. There have, there have been, uh, in my time here, eight, eight years in Houston, I've met a couple of women. I want to I speak to women in particular. And these were women um, whose husbands worked maybe, you know, in oil and gas or something. And they were at home with the children for a number of years. But somewhere along the line, these women were sitting in church, and you have somebody coming in, waving their arms and talking about something. Maybe they're talking about human trafficking. Or maybe they're talking about children at risk. Or maybe they're talking about some cause. And in the middle of that, these women heard the message, and it struck them to the core, and a word came. And then these women became activated. And what you'd have is suburban women. Stay-at-home moms, all of a sudden spearheading like anti-human trafficking organizations or children at risk or involved in these really cutting-edge ministries. I mean, I w- you know, I mean, what would it be like, men, if your wife says, well, you know, you know, kiss, you know kisses you and you go off to work, says, I'm going to work, where are you going? I, I got to go rescue some teens from a brothel somewhere. I mean, talk about the word of the Lord coming and gripping you. So the word comes to Jonah, and it happens. The application that I'd like to offer you, the fill in the blank, is slow down and listen to that word. It is possible to ignore God. It is possible to ignore God. I did it for two years. That's my own testimony, which I'll share later on. It's possible to hear the word and you hear something ringing. It's almost like I know this song. It's like I want to sing it, but I'm trying to suppress it because I'm scared where it's going to take me. I'm scared where it's going to end me, where it's going to end me up. But let me just say this. If I can just say this. God is not trying to take you to scary places because he's trying to scare you. But because he's there. And he wants to invite you to be with him there. He is there and he wants to invite you into those places to be with him. Be with me in this place. And that call, we have to slow down and listen to that. Slow down and listen to that call. Slow down and listen is the first application. Okay, so that's the first step. A word will come. But the second thing, the second step, second fill in the blank is he calls me to rise, to arise, to rise up. Now these words in Jonah, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, verse 2, rise. We'll just stop right there. And the thing about that word arise is that it is an important word in the book of Jonah. It appears again 
and again. Now, uh, for those, those people in my Sunday school, I taught this. When you see a word and it shows up again and again, you know, they call it a lead word. It's a repeated phrase. Pay attention to those words. I don't believe Jonah was written haphazardly. It tells a story, but it tells the story like this, with intentionality. And so there are words here that are, that are used very intentionally. Arise is one of those words. Arise is used very intentionally, and we see it appear again later on in verse 3. Where Jonah rises up and God's like, great, he's finally out of bed. But Jonah rises up only to poof, 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 fix his pillow and turn around and just get more comfortable and pulls the covers over his head. So he rises, up, he rises up but only to kind of go back to bed. And then Jonah runs away and he gets on a ship and the captain says, there's that same word in the Hebrew, kum, which means arise. Rise up! Aren't you going to get out of bed? It's Monday morning. And Jonah refuses, and eventually he gets, uh, he gets thrown out of the ship into the belly of the fish. And then again, later in chapter 3, God tries again. Are you going to rise up this time? It's the second time. Same words, arise. And the, that's when Jonah rises. So, In other words, all to say there's this constant momentum. God's, God's grabbing you by the hand. I know what this is like when my children don't want to get out of bed for school and you start pestering them and you tickle them or like, you know, um, am I the only bad dad here? <laughs> or like you start playing with them, like short of just grabbing you by the hand saying, rise, rise up, wake up, up, up. But there is another word that shows up and it's used quite intentionally as well. And that word is descend. So you have this kind of opposite force, God grabbing you by the hand to pick you up. But what does Jonah do? What does it say? What do the scriptures say if you have the book of Jonah? What does Jonah do? He goes back to bed. He descends. So for every time that Hebrew word kum, which means arise, appears, you also have this Hebrew word yirat, which means to descend, to go down, to run away. And what we see is instead of rising up, Jonah says, <laughs> it's kind of like, you know, you try to wake up your child. It's time for school. And they wake up, but then they fall asleep in the closet or something. Jonah rises up, but then he goes to Joppa. He goes down. He runs away. He goes to Joppa. And at Joppa, he finds a ship. And what does it say he does in the ship? He descends. He goes into, down the ship. And while he's in the ship, where does he go? It says he went down. Again, there is this opposite word, going down, going down. Three times he goes down into the hold of the ship. And by the way, the hold of the ship, that word hold, that word hold in the Hebrew, um, it can be translated as like the double extremities of the ship. It's kind of like playing hide-and-go-seek. And, go seek. and uh, you go into the basement but as if the basement isn't far enough away, you go into the boiler room. Like you are really, really hiding. And he goes to sleep in the boiler room, in the basement, in the bottom of the ship from Joppa. So here you have somebody this opposite direction going down. Going down, pardon me. And this back and forth dynamic. This dance. A dance. Let me tell you a story. 
Um, this is an interesting story. 20 years ago when I was um, uh, doing my discipleship training school, so we were training a group of missionaries. There were 50 of us, and we were all um, together in Montana, and then we were going to be sent out all throughout the world. And just before we were going, so some of us were sent to Central Asia, some of us were sent to India, and we were all getting ready, and we're packing, and we're getting our stuff, we're doing all of our, this is what we're going to do when we're there. There was one kid in our school, out of 50 students, I kid you not, his name was Jonah. <laughs> and, and poor Jonah, um, this kid, he was from the heartland. I mean, you got the sense that, I mean, we were in Montana, but you got the sense that he had never left Kansas or something. You know, he had never left his small town. And poor Jonah, he got in front of the whole class, and he said, I believe God is telling me to go home and not to go on outreach with everybody else. And I remember all of us, like the, 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 the school leaders, looked at each other flabbergasted. God didn't tell me that. But he just had this strong sense, and we kind of all saw through it for what it was. Fear. He was afraid, and he wanted to go home. And the thing is, this is what I'll say about fear. It's so normal. And I'm not getting on Jonah's case or anybody's case if you're afraid to follow the Lord into whatever venture he's put before you. Fear is normal. In fact, for me, when I first heard the call, I didn't obey for about, about two years. I remember in my early 20s when God was beginning to speak to me, the word of the Lord came to Wayne Park, son of High Park, and, you know, the tears streaming down my face, and then God said, arise, arise, I'm going to send you, arise. And I remember thinking, that's the part I don't like, I'm scared. And I ran away, and I went down, I went down to Joppa, but he kept trying to take me by the hand, pick me up. At that time, I was living in New York. He said, you're going to Seattle. Terrifying. I was 20 years old, 21 years old. Who's going to move cross-country? So the fear, I guess what I'm saying is it's normal. It's normal. In fact, this whole dancing dynamic of God taking you by the hand and trying to make you stand up and you saying, no, 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 it's normal. There's no shame in it. It's part of the dance with relationship with God. It's part of this dance that we have with God. It's a two-step. Two steps forward, two steps back. It's okay. That is the question. That's the sole question I want to offer you today. The sole question and the fill in the blank is, am I dancing? Am I dancing? Am I at least involved? Do I sense that call? And if I'm stepping back, at least you know you're in the dance. At least you know you're feeling the tension. You know what, friends? I'm, I'm going to tell you this, that Christian discipleship, it has to have a little bit of a burn. Like if you're a runner, for example, you know that you're not running until you start to feel the sweat dripping down your, your, your tummy. You know that you're not running until your back is wet. 
You know that you're not exercising until you start to feel the strain. You know that you're not feeling the burn until you feel a little bit of that. You, you know what I'm saying? Discipleship has a little bit of that burn. And that is uncomfortable. But that's when we know we're in the dance. We're not dancing if our backs aren't wet a little bit. Isn't that a good analogy? We're not dancing if our backs are not wet a little bit. And so discipleship, friends, I really don't want for us just to be um, churchgoers, but disciples. That's one of our vision statements. Intentional discipleship. Am I dancing? Am I dancing? Okay, so we move on to the third step. So first of all, a word comes. It messes you up. You can't think any more straight. The, God, the word of God is alive and active in you. It's like a fire pent up. And then second step, God's saying it's time to get up, time to rise. And then the third step is he sends. He sends me. So we see in verse 1, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, verse 2, arise, go. Arise, go. Now, there's something happening here grammatically as well. Arise and go. You have two verbs put together without a conjunction. I'm teaching my daughter right now conjunctions. Um, she's learning conjunctions in grade school, learning how to put two sentences together and make them one sentence using and with a comma or something like that. Now, apparently, the original Hebrew writer of Jonah did not take that lesson because there's no conjunctions but these long run-on verbs, verbs that are run-on, uh, strung together. This is actually a Hebrew grammatical technique. Now, this is fun. Just listen. This is a Hebrew grammatical technique, and what they do in Hebrew is sometimes they railroad all these verbs together in a rush, almost like awake, rise, stand, go. But the point of this the reason they do this is to railroad and put the emphasis on the last verb. So you have these verbs smashed together, railroaded together, arise, go. To emphasize the, the, the urgency behind that last verb, go. Awake, rise, stand, brush your teeth, go. <laughs> no conjunction, go. And we, 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 we see this well-translated, uh, for example, uh, I didn't mention this before, but Eugene Peterson, anybody heard of the message translation? He was the author of the message. He was the author of the message. His translation of Jonah 1, I think, captures this. Up on your feet and on your way. Up on your feet and on your way. And so these little two verbs first two verbs of Jonah chapter 1 verse 2, arise, go, contain that urgency, up on your feet and on your way, time to go. But instead, Jonah went deeper. And I remember, um, this is where my story comes in, when I first got the sense that God was calling me to leave home, to leave New York, um, It had that urgency, arise, go, up on your feet, on your way. And 
I avoided that. I avoided that call. Um, I avoided that call to the point where I had to actually go through depression to finally heed the call. And I realized God was saying, listen, you're dying here. I mean, even in a great city like New York City, like I felt for me, I was dying there. You're dying here. It's time for you to move to a new land. Friends, I'm not saying that, you know, I'm telling you to move from Houston. No, I don't want you to move. But somewhere God's telling you there are green pastures here. There is work. There is ministry. There's a, something you have to face. Up on your feet, move. Up on your feet, go. And the thing is, if we resist that call, if we resist that call, what happens, what happens to us is we might have to hit a rock bottom until we realize God is saying, I've been asking you to go to this greener place. I've been calling you, go. Go. He sends me is the third step. But the question now, the question, the real question, the fill in the blank is, am I sending or am I sent? Pick one. That's the fill in the blank under the third step. Am I sending or am I sent? Pick one. And here I just want to teach ever so briefly for two minutes to describe what we're talking about. When we say am I sending or am I sent, what I'm talking about is something like this. Let's say, let's say um, on an outreach Sunday, at a mission Sunday here at Woven, and we do those now once a month. Mission Sunday, we have somebody, maybe somebody from InterVarsity. Let's say we have a speaker come in, and this person is from Papua New Guinea. And this is a missionary. And this missionary from Papua New Guinea begins to tell you stories. And all of us are wrapped. Every single one of us, myself included. And we're hearing these missionary stories, and he's telling us stories about how he escapes death and about how God rescued him. And in the end, we know where this message is going. The missionary finally says, and how many of you are ready to go with me to Papua New Guinea? Please stand and answer the call. And all throughout that message, your heart is burning inside of you because, yes, I hear the word of the Lord. I'm getting this. And God is saying, arise. And then he's saying, go. And then you're like, uh-oh. And then you see your friend Bob over there stand up. And then you see Betty over there stand up, and you're like, phew, thank goodness somebody stood up because I don't have to stand up. I will send you. I'll be the sending one. I'm sorry to break it to you <laughs> that while there is a biblical precedent for sending, we see that Paul and Barnabas, there's, there's a biblical precedent for sending, but by and large, I think there's a stronger biblical case made that we are all sent. That we are not senders. We are the sendees. And not only that, but that word sent is past tense. We're sent, all of us. In other words, there is no Rambo Christians like Betty and Bob over here. Like they stood up and they took out their bandanas. And it was like these Green Beret Christians ready to, we are all, all sent. We are all the ones from the beginning of the Bible to the, to the end of the New Testament. I think that is the great gospel message that Jesus calls Christians, not Rambo Christians, not elite, you know, special forces Christians, 
Christians, all of us are sent, past tense, that my goodness, what does this mean? That means that your waiting room in your office is a mission field. That means your home is a mission field. That means the place where you teach is a mission field. That means the new business that you are starting is a mission field. That means the mechanics shop is a mission field. That means the place, even at home, home employment, all of these places are mission field. You are sent, past tense, sent. We are all sent. You're sent. Can you see that you are God's hope of the world? You are God's hope for the world. Your work is your ministry. Okay, we're done. We're finished. The sermon is over. All done. Steps one, two, and three. That's all we need. That's how God calls you to ministry. Oh, there's one more step, isn't there? Sorry. I wish it ended at step three. But the original question we were asking is if ministry, I mean, how does God, how does God purify our ministry? In other words, Bonifer is saying that the main problem with ministry, the main problem with ministry is Wayne Park. Do you get that? The main problem with your ministry is you. The main problem with ministry is my desire for power. The main problem with ministry is my ego. The main problem with ministry is my need to gain ascendancy. The main problem with ministry is that all of us, to some degree or another, enter into it looking to get something out of it. Recognition, power, control, love, affection. Looking to gain something out of it. Mm, when reality ministry is not about taking, it's about giving. So this last question, this last step is vital, friends. God doesn't just call us to ministry. Thank goodness he also purifies our ministry. He purifies our ministry. For all of you, God is not just calling you to do some great thing. In the process, He is also purifying what you do. And that fourth and last step is He sends me to where? That's the fill in the blank. Wait, wait, wait. Wait, wait. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh. Was that, you said Tarshish, right? You said Gaul. Rome. I'll go to Rome. Go to Nineveh. So the word of the Lord came saying, Go to Midland, Texas. Or go, go to Katy. But I, I thought you said go downtown or go to the great go to the great cities of the world. Go to Singapore. Go to, you know, go go to Nineveh. The word of the Lord came, and you are finally empowered. And you're saying, "I'm ready. I'm going to do this cutting edge work." And then God says, "Work in this place," and you're saying, "Wait, wait, wait, wait I, I, that's not where I wanted to start my practice." 
Or I didn't think I would end up setting up my business in this part of the city. Or I didn't think that these were the people I was going to work with. You know, Eugene Peterson talks about this. This is the last story. Um, where he talks about how in the 1960s, in the 1960s he wanted to start a church. So he starts a church in suburban Baltimore. 1962. And this church was going to be the best church ever. It was going to have 500,000 hits on Facebook. No, they didn't have Facebook back then. But it was going to do like real cutting edge. Minute. This is a church that's going to be full of real believers. And they're going to kind of eschew the whole, you know, consumerism in Amer- on the American landscape. It's going to be really the, it's going to be the unchurch. It's going to be the, 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 the different church. But as he planted this church, gradually he began to see gathered around him um, the people that didn't fit in the other churches locally. And as he saw misfits, and as he saw this ragtag group of followers, and, and that church became established. It, it became a, um, a Presbyterian church in that suburb. He saw in front of him, instead of, Nineveh, instead of Tarshish, he saw Nineveh. He saw a ragtag group of misfits, and I don't, I, I, you know, I don't say that to kind of, you know, you know, that, that in no way is my way of indicting any of you. That's far from what I'm trying to say. What I am trying to say is that this journey of entering into service, of entering into Christian volunteerism, of living your Christian life, it will take us to a place that we did not originally set out. It might challenge us, and in the end, we find... That our notions of ministry, this is mine, this is my baby, this is my dream, it gets purified. Your baby, your dream is getting purified. Whatever it is, whatever work that you are doing, let God purify it. Let God purify it. And I close with one more story, one last story, and this is the final one. It's the final story. That ever since we entered into this kingdom city arrangement, um, I've been learning culture. And not only is there woven's culture, and we have our culture, it's well defined, but there are other ethnic cultures as well. And that's good because we are a multi-ethnic church. It is in our vision to be a diverse church community for the greater Houston metro area. But in some contexts, especially the um, um, South American or the Hispanic or the Latin context, I've been learning new cultural norms. So it's like, Wayne, you, it's like, God, this is what we wanted, and Wayne, this is what you wanted, multi-ethnic church. So you're learning different cultural things. And what I've learned is that with my South American, Hispanic, Latin American um, brothers and sisters, that when they enter into a room, even if there's 20 people or if there's 200 people, it is their practice to come and embrace every single person and to hug every person in the room and to kiss. And you're like, I didn't bring my binaca. Like, I, I, you know, I, 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 here's my hand. <laughs> but learning to embrace that, I'm not saying that they are my Nineveh. That's not what I'm saying. But I am saying that God is calling all of us, this is the last fill in the blank, He's calling you to embrace something. He's calling you to kiss 
something. Hug. He's calling you to embrace that Nineveh, that thing, that place, those people, this part of the city, this workplace, this situation, I don't like it. That is where God purifies our ministry. It's the place where we said, he sends me where? Yes, there. And that is where we are learning. We are learning the dance of God. We are learning to kiss. We're learning to embrace, embrace. So that's the final thought, friends. What is it that you need to embrace? What is it that we need to kiss today?